Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In today's interview, I am talking with Lori Gottlieb, author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. As a New York Times bestselling author, psychotherapist, and national advice columnist, Gottlieb gives us a hilarious, thought-provoking, and surprising new book that takes us behind the scenes of a therapist's world, where her patients are looking for answers, and so is she. One day, Gottlieb is a therapist who helps patients in her Los Angeles practice. The next, a crisis causes her world to come crashing down. Enter Wendell, the quirky but seasoned therapist in whose office she suddenly lands. With his balding head, cardigan, and khakis, he seems to have come straight from therapist central casting. He will turn out to be anything but... With startling wisdom and humor, Gottlieb invites us into her world as both clinician and patient, examining the truths and fictions we tell ourselves and others as we teeter on the tightrope between love and desire, meaning and mortality, guilt and redemption, terror and courage, hope and change. Maybe you should talk to someone is revolutionary in its candor offering a deeply personal yet universal tour of our hearts and minds and providing the rarest of gifts, a boldly revealing portrait of what it means to be human and a disarmingly funny and illuminating account of our own mysterious lives and our power to transform them. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and author. Her book is a New York Times bestseller, which is currently being adapted as a television series. In addition to her clinical practice, she writes The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column and contributes regularly to The New York Times and many other publications. Her recent TED Talk is one of the top 10 most watched of the year. A member of the Advisory Council for Bring Change to Mind, and advisor to the Aspen Institute. She is a sought-after expert in media such as the Today Show, Good Morning America, the CBS This Morning, CNN, and NPR's Fresh Air. Her new iHeartRadio podcast, Dear Therapist, produced by Katie Couric, will premiere this year. Learn more at lauriegottlieb.com or by following her on Twitter at Lori Gottlieb one and Instagram at Lori Gottlieb underscore author. Hello everybody. And welcome back to new books in psychology, a podcast channel of the new books network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the channel. And today I'm very lucky to be talking with Lori Gottlieb, psychotherapist and author of maybe you should talk to someone. Thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. So I thought maybe we'd get started by you telling us a little bit about yourself 
and about how you came to write the book. Sure. So I am a psychotherapist and I was a journalist before I was a psychotherapist and I still uh, am a writer. And I actually wasn't supposed to be writing this book. And in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, in sort of a meta way, <laughs> you can see the evolution of how this book came about. I was actually supposed to be writing a book about happiness. And ironically, the happiness book was making me miserable. Um, and part of that was because I was starting out as a new therapist and I really felt like what I was seeing in the therapy room um, was really about the human condition. And I think that what you learn either by going through therapy or by being a therapist is that happiness as a byproduct of living your life in a fulfilling way, I think is what we all strive for. But happiness as a goal in and of itself is kind of a recipe for disaster. And so um, I really struggled with trying to fulfill my book contract and write the happiness book, but it just, it, it just felt meaningless to me at a certain point. And so I canceled that book. And what I decided to do was to bring people into the therapy room so that they would get to see what I see every day. And part of what I wanted to do was to help them see themselves, because I think we see ourselves so much through the lens of other people's stories. And so in the book, I follow four very seemingly different patients as they go through their respective struggles. And then there's a fifth patient in the book. And the fifth patient is me as I go through my own struggle and I go into therapy and work with my own therapist. But really, even though it's, it's these five people, including myself, I, I feel like the book is truly about the person who's reading it and what they learn about themselves and the people around them from sharing those stories. So right before we officially started, I had, I had shared with you that one of my clients told me that she felt I was speaking to her through the book and you were, were starting to talk to that. Would you, would you say something about that again? Yeah, I loved hearing that story because that's what I'm getting a lot of is letters from people who are saying, you know, I read this book and it really... Uh, it really moved me and it really made me think about the work that I'm doing in therapy. And I brought it to my therapist and they do it for various reasons. Sometimes it's, they feel like they're hearing their therapist through my voice in the book. And part of it is, you know, there are certain ways that just because I'm a patient in the book doesn't mean, you know, that I'm, I, I'm sorry, let me say it this way. <laughs> just because I am a therapist doesn't mean that I'm not also just like every other patient when I go to therapy. And so um, at one point, you know, I wonder like everybody else, well, does my therapist like me? Am I boring him? When I leave and I see somebody else in the waiting room, you know, I think, well, you know, he's probably looking forward to her session more than mine. Um, and so at one point in the book, um, you can see that I asked my therapist if he likes me. And so a lot of people are saying that they brought the book into their therapy sessions and said something like, you know, in this book, she asks her therapist if he likes her, you know, they won't directly ask it and, and, but they very much want to know the answer to that question. So I think what it's done is it's opened up all of these conversations for people about the relationship in the room, which is a true relationship. Now it's a, it's a unique relationship because it only exists in the confines of that room. But at the same time, um, it's two human beings who are having an incredibly profound experience. And so I think that the book has given people permission to talk about that relationship in a new way and in a deeper way. 
Yes. In one instance of your therapy with Wendell, there was something that just touched my heart and I made a little note to myself. And it was, it was just a unique situation where you were both um, like the patient, but also mindful that you are a therapist. You had arrived soaking wet and you had, I guess you'd park across the street and it was pouring rain and you arrived in his office soaking wet and had the dilemma like, do I sit on his couch? I'm soaking wet. And he offered you a towel or towel. Yes. <laughs> and I loved it because you captured you the way you tell the story. You were just so touched by like, who's got towels? He's got a towel. He's just going to give me a towel. And then I loved you added there, note to self, keep towels in the office. And I, I was thinking the same thing as I read it. I'm going to have towels in my office. You never know. And I just wonder what it was like for you you know, it was just, it was obviously, it took some courage to disclose all of the same things that you, that you feel that, you know, come up for others in therapy. And what about that idea that you're supposed to have everything figured out? Yeah. You know, I say at the very beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card carrying member of the human race. And I think that that is, what the book is about. It's about how we grow in connection with others and how we're all more the same than we are different. And that's the reason that I picked four patients who look so completely different from one another when you first meet them, and maybe even different from the reader. Um, because I think what you come to see is that all of us, all five of us, are struggling with very similar universal questions about what it means to be a person in the world. How can I love and be loved? Uh, what can I change? What can't I change? How do I deal with loss? Um, how do I deal with regret? Um, you know, what does it mean to take a risk? Why is it so hard to change even when you know you need to change? Um, you know, what can I do when um, I feel stuck? And why can't I get myself out of that? I mean, I think these are all questions that we deal with on a daily basis, whether we're kind of consciously thinking about them or not. So um, I wanted to include myself because I felt like it would be almost disingenuous to make it seem like I was this expert up on high, my patients are dealing with these things, but I've got it all worked out. <laughs> and I think, you know, we're doing a, a TV series of the book. And one of the things that's really important to me is that it's a series about people who happen to be therapists as opposed to a series about therapists. Um, and I think that distinction is really important because I think it's really important for people to understand that they are not alone, to people to realize that they have so much in common with other people, even when it seems like they don't. And also that other people have wisdom and guidance to offer them. And so many times people don't reach out, whether it's to their friends or to a therapist or to a family member, because of all of these ideas about what it means to struggle and, you know, their separateness from other people. And I think once people see that we're all uh, very similar, uh, no matter what our lives look like, I think that, that more people will find a way to connect with others, which I think, of course, is a cornerstone of, of emotional health. Yes. And I think that's, I think being um, authentic really helps as a therapist because it, it can put the other, other person at, at ease. 
at the same time, uh, the book is really worth reading because you beautifully describe a lot of psychological theory that applies and not just to your patients, but to yourself as well. I mean, you, you put into easy to understand language, some of the concepts from research, you know, from years of, of what we know about human nature. Um, so, so there is, if not an expertise, there's a, a wealth of knowledge that as a therapist, you bring to your patients that sometimes gets lost when it comes to ourselves. I wonder if you could say something about that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so of course we are trained to do the work that we do. So, you know, just because we're human doesn't mean we don't also have this additional um, professional expertise. Um, but I think that you can't have the professional expertise without the humanity, without the human factor, or you won't help your patients. You won't, you won't move them forward in any way. You know, nobody wants to go and talk to a brick wall. Nobody wants to talk to that tabula rasa. And, and what I mean by that is that we definitely have boundaries. What I write in my book, I'm not talking about that in the therapy room, of course. Um, but I'm bringing my humanity into the room in the way that my therapist did with me, which was he brought his whole personality into the room. He wasn't telling me anything about his personal life, but he was so real. Um, he wasn't trying to act like a therapist. He was just another person in the room who had a lot of training who knew how to connect with me on a profound level. And you can't do that with your training alone. You have to bring your full humanity into each and every session. Mm -hmm. So now I'm thinking about um, the uh, series, the TV series, and how you're going to capture that in a drama. Well, I think that the difference between the TV series and the book is that the book is nonfiction. So everything in the book actually happened. Um, <laughs> and there are certain parameters you have when you're writing a book and you can get permissions in a certain way. The TV show is fiction. So we're not using um, stories from my, my therapy work um, per se in the TV show. It's, it's very much a you know, a work of, of television writers' minds, and I am consulting and producing um, to make sure that it's authentic, to make sure that it's accurate. Um, you know, I think that in the media, those, the two tropes of the, of therapists have been either what I said earlier, kind of the brick wall, the person who says nothing, the person who's very cold um, and kind of aloof, or there's the, um, the tough love therapist, right? Um, you know, <laughs> sort of, um, you know, but that's all they do. They don't actually do any deeper work. They're just kind of like, no, your problem is, um, that's not really very realistic. Um, and then I would say there's a third trope, um, which is the train wreck, the hot mess, you know, the therapist, like in treatment, um, if you ever saw that show where the therapist is kind of crossing boundaries all the time they're they have their complete mess in their personal life. And that doesn't really reflect, you know, the majority of therapists out there. And so even though in the book, you know, I'm going through a struggle, it doesn't, you know, I'm not a hot mess. I'm actually someone who's going to therapy to work something out. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's something you want your therapist to do. So I, I think there's a really important distinction between, um, you know, therapists as real people versus therapists as these caricatures of real people. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that that makes sense. So 
in the book, you talk a little bit about your other interests before you decided to go into therapy. Because what you have me thinking about now is like who, what kinds of people become therapists? And mm. I remember at one point, a discussion during my graduate school about, well, are people born sort of naturally to become therapists or do you become trained to be a therapist? So I wonder if you'd share a little bit more about your background and how you came into therapy. So I had probably the most nonlinear path possible <laughs> to becoming a therapist. When I graduated from college, I was really, I was always interested in story. And so I started working in film and then later network television because I loved story and the human condition. And um, when I transitioned from film to television, I went to NBC and the shows that, uh, that were premiering that year at NBC were ER and Friends. So big year for NBC, the advent of uh, must-see TV. <laughs> and um, on ER, we had a consultant who was an emergency room physician, and he made sure that um, you know, all the trauma-based scenes were choreographed accurately and you know, just made sure that the show was as, as realistic as possible and as authentic as possible. And I spent a lot of time in the actual ER with this person. And at some point he said to me, you know, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. Maybe you should apply to medical school. And by the way, I was a French literature major. And so, <laughs> but I was always very mathy and sciencey at the same time. I was like the math team person and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but you can see with literature too, right? It's so full of psychology and, and story. So both of those things. And so I ended up um, going up to Stanford for medical school. And when I was at Stanford, um, it was a real transition in the healthcare system where um, a lot of people were talking about that what was then a newfangled thing called managed care. And I was really interested in being that physician who guides people through their lives. And, and again, story in the human condition. And it seemed like that would be really hard in this new system where you have to have thousands of patients and 15 minute visits and answer to insurance companies with lots of paperwork. And so sort of the, the art and the science mixed together, um, it seemed like it was going to be more bureaucratic than, than anything. Um, and so I started writing when I was in medical school and I ended up leaving medical school to become a journalist. And as a journalist, I felt like I could really help people to tell their stories and I could really delve into story in the human condition that way. And then about 10 years after becoming a journalist, I had a baby. And um, I was really, really happy as a new mom. But the one thing that I found really challenging was that I didn't have other adults to talk to during the day. And so the UPS guy would come with all of the myriad deliveries that a new parent has <laughs> coming you know, every day, basically. And every day I would try to engage him in conversation and he was not really enthusiastic about that. And so he would sort of back away to his big brown truck and it got to a certain point where he would tiptoe to my door and gently place the package down so I would not open the door and kind of trap him where he would have to be in a conversation with me. We actually became very friendly later on as you can read about in the book. But at that point I realized, you know what, maybe I need to do something that gets me out of the house. And I was thinking about going back to medical school and doing psychiatry. And so I called up the dean at Stanford and I said, well, maybe I should come back and, and do psychiatry. And she said, you know, you're welcome to come back, but with the work that you want to do, 
instead of doing psychiatry, which is mostly medication management for most people, where you're prescribing um, you know, antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication on, again, these 15-minute intervals, if you want to do the deeper work, you should get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and then do the kind of work that you want to do. And it was one of these moments where what she said was very obvious, but at the same time, it felt like this huge light bulb moment. And that was the best advice uh, professionally that anybody has ever given me. And so I did that. And um, now I feel like what I do is I went from telling people stories as a journalist to helping people to change their stories as a therapist. Because um, I did a TED Talk recently and it was about how changing our stories can help us change our lives. And one of the things I talk about in the TED Talk is that we're all unreliable narrators. We don't think we are, but we are. And it's not because we're purposely misleading. It's because we tell our stories through a particular lens, through our own perspective. And there's always something that we leave in or leave out or emphasize or minimize. Um, you know, we kind of get the protagonists and, and the antagonists mixed up sometimes. The supporting characters sometimes are not supporting characters or shouldn't be. Um, and so I really feel like what I do as a therapist is when I'm sitting in that chair, I feel like an editor and I'm helping people to revise these faulty narratives that they come in with, these narratives that they have about their lives that maybe no longer fit or, or were never accurate to begin with. So I feel like with all these different career changes, I didn't necessarily change my focus, meaning story in the human condition. I just changed the the lens through which I was going to approach it. Yes, it's so fascinating too that um, I think you had said earlier that you'll potentially be in that role of the consultant the same way the ER consultant was when you used to go to the ER. Like he, his role was to just sort of make sure everything was accurate and so funny. Things come. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm answering those questions now for the people who are writing the series. Um, you know, they'll come to me with questions like, well, you know, what would, what would happen in this situation or what would the therapist say here? Um, which is exactly what, what our consultant did on ER. So do you have a particular style or approach? You know how some therapists will say they're very cognitive behavioral or what are your thoughts about that? And how, will the, how would the TV series portray therapists? Well, that's why I wrote Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, because I feel like there are so many misconceptions about what therapy is and what that experience is like. And of course, it's going to be different based on who you go to and what their approach is. But I think ultimately, it's a very human experience. And so I tend to focus a lot on attachment and how early attachment affects how people navigate through the world and in the present. Um, but you know, I also feel like somebody could, could, you know, have a very different approach from me and still ultimately, and study after study backs this up, that the success of someone's therapy um, depends mostly on the relationship with the therapist. So it, that matters more than the person's training, um, the kind of approach that they take, whatever modality they're using, and their years of experience. And I don't mean that those other factors aren't important. They're very important, but they're not as important as the relationship with the therapist. And so I feel like it's interesting when people 
ask that question because it's relevant, but I also feel like what I'm showing in the book is what that, what that relationship really looks like, because that relationship is a microcosm for the relationships that people have out in the world. And if you can learn something from that therapeutic relationship, um, you'll learn a lot about how you interact with people, whether that's your family, your friends, your coworkers, um, whoever it might be. And so do you feel like you interact in the same way and, and, in particular with the the four that you feature in the book, or do you feel like you adjust your style a little bit for each, each of the individual's needs? I think, you know, we have that phrase that uh, you meet people where they are. And I think you have to not only meet them where they are, but you have to learn to speak their language. So people come into therapy with, um, you know, all kinds of ways of interpreting the world that might not be yours. And so I need to learn their language. I need to learn, you know, what they mean when they say something. I need to learn how they view something. Um, part of it is a cultural piece for some people. Um, there's something I don't know about their community, and I need to learn that. For some people, it's about their family that I need to learn about what that ecosystem was like in a new way. Um, what was the language that they used? Uh, you know, to communicate with one another. In a couple, I see a lot of couples in my practice, you know, what is the language that they use to speak to each other, even if it's not through words? Um, I think that so many times people's behavior is a way of communicating something and often communicating something that is unspeakable to them, either because they don't have a way of articulating it because they, they weren't brought up in an environment that would give them those skills um, or because if they have so much shame or pain around something that they aren't able to talk about it. So the first patient that you meet, and maybe you should talk to someone, is this guy who is extremely unlikable at first. And he's incredibly abrasive. He's insulting to me. He has a lot of narcissistic traits. And a lot of people, you know, say, well, why would you why would you treat someone like that? Why would you take someone on like that? And it's because I knew that his behavior was really a way of communicating something to me that we were going to get to later. And of course, I didn't know what it was going to be. And, and I think that what I've heard, the feedback from the book, is that um, people come to really embrace him and, and love him probably the most of any of the patients in the book by the end of the book. He's the most memorable person, the person they felt not only most connected to um, and, and that they came to like, but that they saw aspects of themselves in him. Even though at the beginning they thought, this guy is an asshole. <laughs> you know, like, I don't have anything in common with this guy, right? So what was it like to talk to these, about well, four patients and get their consent? So I wanted to make sure that I was able to keep a clean line between what I was doing as a writer and what I was doing as a therapist. So I didn't uh, write about anybody that I was currently seeing on a weekly basis because I felt like I, even if I was writing about events that happened five years before, I didn't feel like I could see the person in the present and really be focused as a therapist in the present and not somehow have that bleed into the writing or vice versa, or have the writing bleed into the, the work that we were doing in the room. So that was one thing. Um, another thing was I was really careful about which people I decided to include in the book. Um, you know, there were other stories that I felt were really, um, you know, stories that I was really connected to that I thought people would get a lot out of, but I didn't even ask in those cases because I felt like 
either the person was somebody who maybe something they had been working on in therapy was they always wanted to please other people. And that maybe if I had asked, they would say yes to please me, even though they maybe had some hesitation. So I didn't even want to get into that. So I didn't include those people. Or there were, um, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, there were people who um, I had a feeling would maybe be a little bit too excited that they were chosen to be in the book. Um, and clinically, I didn't think that was really uh, going to serve them. And so I didn't ask those people to include them in the book either. So I really chose people where I felt like um, it would be a good experience for them and not something that would in any way harm That's them. That's great. What kind of feedback are you getting? I know you're talking with a lot of book groups. Is there any themes to the messages you're hearing? Well, it's funny because as I said, I wasn't supposed to be writing this book. And so when I did decide that I was going to write this book about, you know, both sides of me as clinician and me as patient. And, and to me, it was always a book that applied to everybody, but I'm not sure that the publishing industry saw it that way. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think originally people thought, well, you know, maybe like three people will read this book. Um, but it was the book that I had to write. And so I felt meaning like internally what I felt had meaning and purpose. And so, um, I wanted to write it and it was okay if not many people read it. Now, of course, we're like a, over a year out and we're still on the New York Times bestseller list. So a lot of people are reading the book. But, um, but at the time, I'm really glad I didn't know how many people would be reading it because I was really raw and, and um, open about what was going on with me. I kind of just let it rip, you know? Um, and I didn't really think about what people would think about my situation because I, again, I didn't think that many people would be reading it. And then I turned it into the publisher and they just loved it. Everybody was saying, Oh my God, I learned so much about myself or I see myself in this or I laughed or I, you know, whatever it was. And so people just started passing it around and passing it around. And I thought, Oh, interesting. Maybe like 300 or 3000 people will read it. <laughs> Little did I know. Um, and so I had this moment of, of just questioning, you know, wow, should I sort of clean myself up because maybe more people will be reading this? And I'm so glad that I didn't because I think that the reason that so many people have read the book and continue to read it is because I did not clean myself up because I, I didn't try to hide anything. And I think that's what people are really responding to because I think that it helps them to see things about themselves and gives them the flexibility to say, I don't need to feel shame around this either. If she can, if she can write about this, you know, I can talk about this. Oh, too. that's so true. I, I feel like you shared your real story, which is one of the reasons why we try to make up other narratives about who we are and how we're living our life because we don't, we don't really feel comfortable with the real story. So that was a big part of it. Um, so let me just. Right. I was just going to say that's, that's what I was talking about with the, uh, with my Ted talk and the stories that people come in with. I think a lot of times we don't even realize how much of a mask we have on that, you know, we don't even realize that the mask is on at all. And so really, you know, a lot of people say, I wonder if I'm boring my therapist. And what I always say to that is, if you show me the truth of who you are, I'm going to be fascinated by you. People think that their real stories are boring and their real stories are fascinating. It's the, it's the stories that they use to try to entertain that get very boring because they don't, they feel very shallow. They don't feel real. 
they feel like a performance. There's this performative aspect. You know, somebody's driving to therapy and they think, what am I going to talk about today? They sort of have their opener. And what I like to do is have people come in and just close their eyes, take some breaths and see what comes up. And so the more they can show me the truth of who they are, the more fascinating they become to me. And I think the more fascinating, more importantly, the more fascinating they become to themselves. Yeah, you have me thinking. I, I love it when someone comes in and sits down and then hesitates for a minute and tells me, you're going to think this is really silly. Or I know this is, I'm making a big deal out of nothing. And I'm like, this is going to be something really helpful. Like this is, now we're going to get to something really good. Uh, yeah. And, and I think part of what people imagine they're doing in therapy is they imagine that they're coming in to get some insight and then they're going to take that insight and, um, and somehow things are magically going to change and they're not going to really do anything with it during the week, but they'll come back the next week and kind of download the problem of the week. That's not what therapy is at all. Therapy is about, you know, we say the insight is the booby prize of therapy. You can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make changes out in the world, if you don't do something differently during the week and then come back and then we can talk about that, then the insight is useless. And so a lot of people also feel like, well, I'm coming to therapy so that I can get to know myself better. And what I think people often discover is that therapy is also an unknowing. Um, you know, it's a process of getting to unknow yourself, to let go of these limiting stories that you've been telling yourself, like nothing will ever work out for me, or I'm unlovable, or I can't trust anyone, um, or whatever stories that people told you about yourself when you were growing up that just don't reflect reality. So I think that there's a, there's a knowing that goes on in therapy, but there's also probably just as importantly, there's an unknowing that happens so that we can we can live our lives and not these stories that we believe about our lives that don't actually reflect them. And how do you, how do you support people in making changes? Because you're, you're saying it, they need to do things in between. Yeah. Change is really hard. And I think in therapy, you have to be both vulnerable and accountable. So you have to be vulnerable so that you can, I can see who you really are and you can see who you really are. And we can talk about what's not working and we can let go of the shame and really get in there and say, okay, let's, let's try to understand this better. Um, and then the accountability part is what are you going to do differently with what you're learning about yourself? And I think change is so hard because change always involves loss, even really positive change. You know, say somebody's going to like get a promotion or they're getting married or they're having a baby. Um, there's some loss involved with that because you lose your, the familiar, you lose the, the way your life was. And even if, even if your life wasn't very good, even if your life was miserable, you know, it's kind of like the devil you know. And humans don't do well with uncertainty. And so every time you make a change, you have to give up something that feels like home to you, even if home is miserable, to venture out into something that you don't know what it's going to be like yet. It's kind of like you just landed in this, in this foreign territory and you don't speak the language or know the customs yet. And so it, it's a risk and it takes some courage, but it's, it's worth it right? Otherwise, you're just stuck in this, in this place where if you never make change, um, nothing will change. People often come in and they say, I want something to change. And what they really mean is, I want someone else or something else to change. 
<laughs> and what they learn in therapy is that you're the one who needs to make changes. So, you know, it's not to say that there aren't difficult circumstances or difficult people out there. I remember that when I was training, one of my supervisors said, before you diagnose someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes, right? So, <laughs> so yes, you might be surrounded by difficult people, but then what is your response to those people? Is this a relationship that you need to be in? Why? And if so, how can you change your role in this dance that's been going on for a long time? Yes. And I think in the cases that you write about, you do a nice job of portraying how the individual's relationship with you empowers that because you accept them and you show genuine interest and compassion towards them even when they are divulging things about themselves that they don't like. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between, um, you know, what our friends and family can do for us and what a therapist does for us. And you see that in the book where I talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So idiot compassion is what our friends do for us. So, you know, you got fired from your job or your coworker did something or, you know, the third boyfriend in a row broke up with you, right? And, and every time you say to your friends, you know, with idiot compassion, that's right, they were wrong, you were right, that's so terrible. Um, and it feels really great in the moment, but it doesn't help the person in the long term. It's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. But we don't say that to our friends. A therapist, on the other hand, will offer wise compassion. And wise compassion is where we hold up a mirror to you so that you can see yourself in a way that maybe you haven't been willing or able to before. And, and you know, the word compassion is in there because we do it with compassion. But it's really important that you can see this so that you can do something differently so you don't keep ending up in the same place over and over. And then all you do is say, oh, it's somebody else's fault. Yeah. So nice. Well, gosh, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and sharing all of this with us. Um, oh, my pleasure. Before I, before I let you go, um, do you want to fill us in on some of the things you're working on now? You've already mentioned the TV series, mentioned a recent TED Talk. What else are you up to? Sure. Um, so I'm still writing my weekly Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic, which runs every Monday. And I'm launching a new podcast um, called Dear Therapists with iHeartRadio that Katie Kirk is producing. And um, it takes the, the advice column a, little, a step farther where instead of just, um, so in the advice column, I get a letter, I answer the letter. Sometimes I'll find out what happens because somebody will write to me, but the reader never hears what happens. And in the podcast, I'm doing it with a co-host, Guy Winch, who's another therapist and writer and TED talker like me. And um, what we do is we offer people the behind the scenes of what happens when a therapist looks at somebody's issue. So the person will uh, send in a letter. Guy and I will discuss it kind of in the way that two therapists do with a case consultation with each other. Uh, the, list, the, the letter writer doesn't hear that part. And then we go back to the letter writer. We, offer, we get more information, offer our suggestions, and the person goes and tries them and then comes back and tells us how it went. And I think that's the most important part of the podcast because I think so often we learn a lot from what worked and also what didn't work. Um, and so there's that, that piece that's very satisfying, I think. It's not just, okay, go try this and, and that's all great. But then, well, let's see what really happened and you know, how did it pan out? And if it didn't work, can we adjust the suggestions? Oh, that should 
that should be so helpful for demystifying, you know, how people make changes through some sort of, you know, uh, therapy. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. And then, um, you know, of course, working on the, uh, the TV series of maybe you should talk to someone and then starting another book uh, shortly. Okay. So you are busy. When will we be able to tap into the podcast, this new podcast? Um, hopefully it got a little delayed because of the coronavirus, but um, hopefully we should be launching uh, by the end of the summer. Great, great. And do you just want to put out there your website so that people can read more about you? Sure. So they can find me at lorigottlieb.com. That's L-O-R-I-G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B.com. Um, they can follow me on Twitter at lorigottlieb1 or on Instagram at lorigottlieb underscore author. Um, they can write into the advice columns, uh, and podcast, um, they can watch my Ted talk. And of course they can get, maybe you should talk to someone at their favorite bookstore. Yeah. It's, I have given it to many people. So it's a, it's a favorite recommend that I have. And, um, we'll be looking forward to see what the next book is too. Great. Well, thank you so much. I so enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.